0: When C.C. Wong met his mom's new tenant, he never suspected he'd end up getting replaced as a son or that his replacement might have sinister motives. This week, Invisibilia looks at the things we don't say to our loved ones and the misunderstandings it can lead to. Listen on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org.
1: Maria Popova and Natalie Batalia, an astrophysicist with an eye to cultural evolution towards good, a literary thinker who takes what she calls a telescopic view of time. What unfolds between these two is joyous and expansive, rich with cosmic imagining, civic pondering, and even some fresh definitions of the soul.
0: I do not believe in a solid self, as I don't believe in a soul that outlives the rest of the constellation of being, the physical being that is us. But at the same time, it is where we spring from, the us-ness of us. Is rooted in this very complex interplay of values, beliefs, ideas, friends, places we've been, smells we've remembered, and you know, and um, it's impossible to be a person without that. It
2: took 13.7 billion years for the atoms to come together to create the portal to the universe, which is my physical self. So, in that statement, is this idea or the fluidity of time and space, and I kind of see it all at once. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being.
1: I sat with Maria Popova and Natalie Batalia at the first-ever On Being gathering amidst the redwoods of the 1440 Multiversity in Scotts Valley, California. Natalie Batalia's Twitter profile is eukaryote. 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 Yeah. (laughs) On planet Earth. Eukaryote on planet Earth using self-awareness and empathy to experience, love, and seek knowledge. Astronomer involved in search for life on exoplanets. (laughs) Um, (laughs) She uh, leads the science investigation effort for the Kepler Space Telescope, which is NASA's first mission to find Earth-size planets beyond our solar system, which are potentially habitable. Mm -hmm. Um, And Maria Popova is, you know, I I don't know how to, it's hard to describe either one of these women. Uh, She describes herself as a reader, writer, interestingness, hunter-gatherer, and curious mind at large. And Maria also single-handedly reminds us that the internet and social media can be places where we trade wisdom and sustenance and substance and deep learning and deep thinking, and that even that kind of exchange and experience online can have millions of followers. So we have here an astrophysicist who writes about love and empathy and a literary thinker who takes what she calls a telescopic view of time. (laughs) I'm so excited to have the two of them together. And I wanna start um, by hearing from each of you, I don't know, Maria, let's start with you. Something in however you would define the spiritual background of your life that is especially present to you now in the sense of nourishing or troubling or animating or all three. Hmm.
0: Well, I am an atheist who finds a lot of meaning and nourishment and spiritual sustenance in nature uh, particularly in, I would say, the cosmic nature of reality, the cosmic aspect, but also very much the earthly, the being out in these beautiful redwoods today. and I mean, I don't think it's an accident. It's called a cathedral the, down there. I don't know how many of you went. I really recommend it. Uh, I suppose more of the Whitman Bent of when all else is exhausted and society and business and politics, what remains? Nature remains. And of course, we are part of nature and this connection between the rest of the natural world and ourselves, I find the most elemental nourishing force that there is.
2: Well, Natalie, what about you? I had a feeling you were going to ask yeah, well, question. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. You <laughs> had a little warning. <laughs> Um, first of all, as a scientist, I, can, is there, are there any scientists in the audience? Oh, yeah. I feel yeah. less alone. Yeah. Thank you. That's fantastic. I, I do consider myself to be a spiritual person, but I've grappled a lot with what the definition of spirituality is. I'm not sure that we have a common definition. No. I guess my spirituality can best be characterized as a deep reverence for mystery.
1: Yeah.
2: And, and, you know, I ask myself, well, do I have any kind of faith? That's another word that I kind of grapple with. Um, And I think at the crux of it, even a scientist does have a faith of sorts. Like, for example, I I live my life um, with the idea that the universe can be described by a set of physical laws that are quantifiable and knowable and that they apply anywhere in the universe. And that's an assumption, Right? I mean, the scientist doesn't really have a notion of an absolute truth, but that is a core assumption. And in fact, I would take it a step further and say that I live my life as if every mystery can be revealed and that there is no limit to our knowledge. And that's a controversial statement. Mm-hmm. But I just love living that way because to me it opens up possibility mm. and it drives me. And I find it very compelling and exciting. You know, Maria, when you and
1: I spoke a couple of years ago, you said something so interesting. You talked about a way you think about the work you do with brain pickings, um, which, you know, brain pickings is a way of sharing what you're reading and thinking and connections between these things. Um, You said you feel like sometimes you're engaged in a kind of spiritual generational reparenting in the sense that, and this is what you said, caring for these bygone thinkers while at the same time imbuing the present generation with their hand-me-down wisdom and their most enduring ideas. And recently, um, I think this is a good example, in, actually this year you were writing about Zadie Smith on Optimism and Despair, a contemporary writer. Said so James Baldwin knew when, in considering why Shakespeare endures, he observed... It is said that his time was easier than ours, but I doubt it. No time can be easy if one is living through it.
0: And in that piece on Shakespeare, Baldwin also said the greatest poet in the English language found poetry where poetry is found in the lives of the people. Hmm. Something that's interested me also
1: recently I feel that you are, you've been writing and speaking a little bit more about. Bulgaria about where you came from and how even though you're you are young, not yet an elder like me um, <laughs> i'm serious um, you you li- you still lived through the the world utterly changing like the mm-hmm. world of your childhood and what it you um, but you 've made an interesting connection between you know living through a communist dictatorship, having, I said, having seen poems composed and scientific advances made under such tyrannical circumstances. But also recalling, not just for yourself, but for, us, for the rest of us, of this point of pride is that there was a Bulgarian folk song above the Voyager spacecraft. Mm. Yeah. Um, and in this context, you've been thinking about and I've really been taking sustenance from this and quoting it everywhere, how important it is, and it so relates to what you do, Natalie, taking a telescopic view of time as a way to inhabit this moment with some calm.
0: Well, I mean, there are so many layers. I think the the Voyager is one of the greatest allegories for so much that we're grappling with today. And, And as a scientific... Feat Natalie can speak to, but it is the first human-made object to exit the solar system and to go into interstellar space. But as a poetic feat, aborted was the golden record, which, you know, the scientific purpose was to communicate to some other civilization who we are, in this packet of um, music, recordings of languages and, and photographs.:: was yeah. Bach and a kiss. And a volcano erupting, and the humpback whale, and yeah, and a Bulgarian folk song, the brain of
2: a woman in love.
0: W- who yeah. was the creative director of the Voyager spacecraft, um, yeah. uh, the golden record, um, Annie Adrian, who fell in love with Carl Sagan in the course of this mission. So there's this I beautiful I think it was their, their kiss, right? That kiss? Uh, no, the kiss is not their kiss. Oh, the it kiss wasn't? is Annie kissing her palm because they figured out that an actual kiss doesn't make an expressive enough sound. So this was the one-staged um, <laughs> thing. <laughs> that they manufactured. That they manufactured. Right. But there are so many things about the Voyager that really ground you back into this longer view of time, one of which is, for example, I mean, this was happening in the middle of the Cold War. So to me, the more significant purpose of the golden record, I mean, the the probability that another civilization would find it, I mean, it's very small, but it mirrored back to humanity who we are in this moment when we were so conflicted and and polarized and had forgotten that we share this tender planet. And the Bulgarian folk song, which was one of the pieces of music, is this um centuries old Shepherdess's a cappella song. And Bulgaria is a very old country, 14 centuries old, five of which were spent during Ottoman under Ottoman occupation, during which there was tremendous. Uh, violence that was regular, that was normalized, you know. Hmm. Massacres and uh, rapes and murders and kids kidnapped from their homes, trained to be soldiers in the Ottoman army and sent back to murder their own families. I mean, really awful things that people survived for 500 years. And that song encodes that truth beyond language, beyond, I mean, right. you don't have to speak Bulgarian or know no European history to hear those sounds. And receive in your body, in your bones, both the, the sorrow and the persistence and the resilience that carried people through that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm. One of the things you've noted, you know, when you were writing about that, you wrote, It's worth keeping the Voyager in mind. As we find our capacity for perspective constricted by the stranglehold of our cultural moment, and including the fact that. You know, there was actually recently this report, you were talking about the proportion of the news and how much else is happening that, is not, that we're not talking about. And, in fact, on scientific frontiers, mm. these have been an astonishing, beautiful couple of years. Mm. You know, you said what imperceptible fraction was devoted to the, to the 2017 Nobel Prize in Physics awarded for the landmark detection of gravitational waves. And then, Natalie, on Facebook you posted the first image of a dark matter web that connects galaxies, and you said, your friendly reminder that dark matter comprises 25% of the mass energy budget of the cosmos, while dark energy comprises 70%, and the normal matter that you and I are made of is just a wee 5%, and it's all connected by a cosmic web of filamentary bridges that stretch across millions of light years. Carry on. LAUGHTER I'm Krista Tippett at the 2018 On Being Gathering with astrophysicist Natalie Batalha and brain pickings Maria Popova.
2: I'm glad Facebook is good for something. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, it gives you perspective, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you, um, you use this word calm with regards to science, and somebody else used that word with me yesterday, saying that they find, in this moment in time, they find science to be calming to give us perspective. And, and certainly, I'm afforded that every day because everything we do and we're learning it forces you to think big picture, you know? So mm-hmm. you're really taking, you're stepping outside yourself and you're, you're going back in time and you're thinking about the furthest reaches of the galaxy and just looking at, at where, where we've been from, from the eukaryotes on, you know, or yeah. even before. Um, however, I find myself extremely conflicted because I myself don't want to feel comfortable right now. Mm -hmm. I I want to feel uncomfortable and I want to get out of that comfort zone. And I'm starting to feel more and more like science is almost an indulgence um, at this moment in time. And I'm feeling more and more pulled towards the civic realm. And this individual yesterday who used the word calming and said how, you know, it's like brings her back down, you know, and said, okay this is just a blip. This is just a blip in time. This is insignificant. And and frankly, who to better understand than somebody who works at NASA, that um, NASA is much more than any one president right Mm -hmm. we carry on we do our things we've got our decadal review scientists who come up with a strategic plan that stretches decades into the future and we're going to keep our eye on that prize and presidents come and go and and you know so so I I feel that but at the same time there's a certain urgency especially with regards to the sustainability of life here on our own planet and where do I
0: draw the line I agree and disagree, because I think, in a way, it's not separate, right? It's not the moment we separate science from life, including the civic aspect, we diminish both. And I've, in the last year, spent a lot of time with the papers of Rachel Carson, the great marine biologist and writer who, her 1962 book Silent Spring, we can basically thank for the modern environmental movement. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really interesting, because she used science to incite, first of all, a public conscience that was just not there before that. Mm-hmm. And she she's somebody who started out as a poet and ended up doing biology but never relinquished poetry. So she ended up becoming an incredibly poetic writer of science that in addition to changing culture and policy, I mean, um, the creation of the EPA as a direct consequence of Rachel Carson's work, the first Earth Day, but in addition to that, she also created a cultural aesthetic of thinking and writing about science in poetic terms that I think enlarged both. Yeah, and I do think. There's a responsibility in that. And especially for you, Natalie, because you think so beautifully and poetically, I think you do both in your work. Yeah. And by your work, I mean not just your NASA work, but what you write on Facebook, how, what you say here. It's, I, I yeah. think it achieves both. I was thinking, because I'm aware of that tension in
1: you, and it made me think, and I actually went back and looked at the transcript when I interviewed Brother Guy Consolmagno, who's at the Vatican Observatory, mm-hmm. You do exoplanets, and he does asteroids. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and he tells this story about how, you know, he's a Jesuit, right? So he he's, um, he's, has a religious calling, and he always wanted to be an astronomer. Um, but then at some point when he was in his 20s, I think he went into the Peace Corps because he felt like this isn't the real work, right? This isn't the human work. Am I really making lives better? And how they sent him to Kenya... And then I had him teaching, and then um, on the weekends he would go out to visit other Peace Corps volunteers, just, you know, not in the city. And he always had a little telescope with him, because that's who he was. And he had slides with him that could be powered by car batteries. And so he thought now he was helping people in the Peace Corps, and everybody wanted to look through the telescope. Mm -hmm. And actually, I, I pulled this out, what he said to me, he said... Everybody, and then they would ask him to give talks, and he said, and, and they would show exactly the same oohs and ahs looking at the craters of the moon or the rings of Saturn, exactly the same as when I set this up back in Michigan. And it suddenly dawned on me, well, of course, it's only human beings that have this curiosity to understand what's that up in the sky? How do we fit into that? Who are we? Where do we come from? And this is a hunger that is as deep and as important as a hunger for food, because if you starve a person in that sense, You're depriving them of their humanity. And he said, that's why we do this. And I just feel that that radiates from you, too. I agree with Maria.
2: Yeah, I I certainly feel that. Mm -hmm. Um, Besides our innate need to push frontiers and and learn and the joy, you know, Carl Sagan's understanding is a form of ecstasy. Um, I think understanding, knowledge, learning about the reality of our universe is... A spiritual experience in and of itself. Mm-hmm. I, I like to think that knowledge brings empathy. I mean, science has the opportunity to do good and, and to do bad, of course, and we've seen examples of that. But um, I would contend that when we learn that the atoms that make up our cells were manufactured in the cores of stars, empathy grows because you realize the connectedness not just of all humans, but of all humans and all living creatures. Everything in our biosphere, our shared biosphere. Here we are looking for life. You know, is there life out there? Mm -hmm. Um, That's also going to change our sense of otherness and how we see us as sentient beings uh, with awareness, you know the the universe itself becoming aware, um, and I value that, I really do, but there 's a certain irony about looking for life out in the galaxy while at the same time you know that you 're potentially destroying the potential for life here on planet earth there 's mm-hmm. an irony in that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and i'm I really am struggling with it mm-hmm. i i 'm not going to lie, yeah yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. But I see that also as a function. Like you've said, your civic thought is shaped to a large degree by your work studying the universe and thinking about the origins of life. I mean, that, mm-hmm. again, that is a perspective and even a, a critique, a, a concern that flows from the science you do.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, one, one practical thing that we can do as we study planetary habitability, actually, we have to think about the, the limits of life. Um, what are the boundaries? How far can you push a planet before it becomes uninhabitable. And so we look at planets like Mars and and Venus and ask ourselves what happened in those cases. And um, so so every time you go out and you study the universe, you learn something about yourself. And in this case, we're learning about our own planet and its propensity for life, and that's related to the sustainability or the climate change issue. So when I go out and speak to the public, I do have an opportunity to engage them in that kind of a conversation, to Mm -hmm. circle the conversation back to who we are, you know. You are both two people
1: who are not religious in a traditional sense, 21st century people. You, Maria, you said it, you're atheist, and, and Natalie, that spirituality is something that you... It's complex. And, you know, honestly, you said we don't have a definition. I think, I think there are as many definitions as there are lives in a room, and that it's never static, so it's always evolving. And yet both of you ponder... And use the language of the soul. And I find that fascinating. And I just want to talk about what that is. What, what are we talking about? Maria, you actually spoke, you did a commencement address. Was it last year?
0: I think two years at ago. You
1: alma mater, Arbor mm-hmm. School at Penn. And, and it was, the soul was the heart of it. What do you, uh, you know, here's some language from that. uh, I mean, the soul simply as shorthand for the seismic core of personhood from which our beliefs, our values, and our actions radiate. And you've also said that the people most whole and most alive are always those unafraid and unashamed of the soul. So what is that?
0: Mm. Um, I mean... You know, there are certain words that have been vacated of meaning by overuse and misuse. And we have the choice of either relinquishing them altogether or trying to reclaim them in some way. And soul is one of those words. I chose to go with trying to imbue it with the meaning that I live with in relation to it. Um, It is, of course, related to the notion of the self. Now, I do not believe in a solid self, as I don't believe in a soul that outlives the rest of the constellation of being, the physical being that is us. But at the same time, it is where we spring from. The usness of us is rooted in this very complex interplay of values, beliefs, ideas, friends, Places we've been, smells we've remembered, and you know, and um, it's impossible to be a person without that. And because of that, it's impossible to be a, a decent person without tending to it the way you would tend to a garden that you want to bloom beautifully. Hmm. Mm. Natalie,
1: I don't know if you meant this as a definition of the soul, but it strikes me as a way in. Um, We are that complexity.
2: We are the universe becoming Mm self-aware. Yeah. It it took 13.7 billion years for the atoms to come together to create the portal to the universe, which is my physical self. So in that statement is this idea or the fluidity of time and space. And I kind of see it all at once. And I don't know what me is. I just feel part of everything. And I feel such deep gratitude for being able to take this conscious look at the universe, at myself as being part of the universe. So that perspective and this idea of the universe evolving from energy into simple matter, into gradual complexity, into microbes on planet Earth... And then, two billion years later, the symbiotic merger of a bacteria and an archaea to create a eukaryote, which exploded complexity, creating us, you know, the complexity and intelligent life that we have today. That vision, and just how improbable is my birth and this opportunity, just fills me with deep gratitude and sustains me through the darkest moments. Um, I don't know what that means in terms of a soul. I, mm-hmm. I don't prescribe to anything more. I don't need anything more, mm-hmm. frankly. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm completely at home with the idea that I've had this ephemeral time here to do this, and I'm just so grateful, and that's enough.
1: Mm. <laughs> I think that deserves a call. <laughs> Rhea, here's something else you said in that speech um, just extending that you said cynicism is a hardening a calcification of the soul hope is a stretching of its ligaments a limber reach for something greater
0: I do think that cynicism is You know, it's easy to judge it harshly, but really it's a defense mechanism, an ill-adaptive, maladaptive defense mechanism when we feel bereft of hope. And to live with hope in times that reward cynicism and in many ways call for cynicism, I think is a tremendous act of courage and resistance.
1: You can listen again and share this conversation with Maria Popova and Natalie Batalia through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being
2: continues in a moment. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton
0: Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why
2: are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, taking a telescopic view of this moment we inhabit and imagining cultural evolution towards good. I'm with astrophysicist Natalie Batalia and brain pickings Maria Popova at the first ever On Being Gathering amidst the redwoods of the 1440 Multiversity in Scotts Valley, California. I find it just overall fascinating you know, one of the projects we have, or we just, we have something we call public theology reimagined, which is really just a body of work within our body of work, but I think it's also an idea, and it's how in the 21st century we are, you know, people like you um, are picking up questions and language and ideas that in previous centuries of human history were the domain of, you know, pretty strictly of theologians and philosophers, you know, what is the soul, and uh, I don't remember, Natalie, you were talking to me about how you thought about love, like dark matter, like dark, knowing about dark matter helped you think about the nature of love, or, or hope. Um, you also have been writing openly about, uh, you have four children, right? And you're young, you're, is it your youngest daughter who's 15? 16 16, now. 16 mm-hmm. who has MS. Mm-hmm. And I see you reflecting on that also just reflecting on how she is living with that and mm-hmm. b- becoming a human being with and along, and you know, through that. It, um, and you being at a gathering where people were where scientists, I think, were discussing ish- ethical issues relevant to modern day society. You know what I'm talking about? This post you wrote? I'm sorry, ethical issues with regards Relevant to-, to modern day society. Mm-hmm. And somebody was talking about the future of human reproduction and oh. freezing you know, genetic testing to select offspring. Mm -hmm. And, you you know, you were reflecting on how our weaknesses are also our strengths and our weaknesses open up potential for new knowledge and empathy and cultural evolution toward goodness. And that's you as a mother.
2: And it's also you as an astrophysicist. It is, yeah, absolutely. Um, Can I just warn everybody I'm a total crier? (laughs) If I uh, can't if you, speak want, anymore because we're getting like heavy yeah. now. And if you don't want to talk about this, that's okay too. <laughs> no, I don't mind. It's you just can, I am a crier, you so can be cry warned. In this room. I mean, you're, you're bringing this stuff out. Yeah. Um, uh, gosh, um, it's funny how these bigger questions the science that I do and what I'm living at home and the civic realm are so interconnected also shaped by um, just thoughts about Western culture and our definition of success and our aversion to failure. And all of those things are connected. And that piece that you're drawing from tried to bring those ideas together. Um, So yes, I have a daughter who's living with MS. And it's been very difficult. And she has a lot of questions about it. And the story that Krista's is referring to is um, I was at a dinner with some very interesting people. It was kind of a think tank. And um, we started talking about genetics and the idea that we're getting to the point in genetics where we could test our genetic material of our eggs, our embryos, and we could actually pick the child that we want to give birth to. And I started to wonder, well, would my daughter choose... To not give birth to a child that had a propensity for MS. We don't even know what causes MS. And so it begged the question you know, when is a bug considered a feature? There, there, there was actually an engineer mathematician there who mm-hmm. said, oh, well, yeah, what is her role in society? You know, her existence inspires us to go out and push the boundaries of what we know. We're studying the brain in part because she exists. And we will learn things that will benefit everybody. So her, she has a role. And so when does a bug like that become a feature? And it just really inspired a
0: lot of questions. And and also, I think our definition of um, people of different abilities have always been instrumental to creative culture. And you look at the history of why we're here through the great breakthroughs in art and science and philosophy so many people had. Mental illness, physical disability, where do you draw the line? I mean, according to the DSM half a century ago, I would have been an aberration. I mean, homosexuality was considered a mental disorder and some you know, Alan Turing was basically killed for yeah. it, as was Oscar Wilde indirectly. You know, that kind of thing that where do you draw the line? And you know, Temple Grandin she's been doing yeah. really beautiful work on and basically she says, you know, people with autism are on the spectrum are. Responsible for Silicon Valley, without us, you know, (laughs) there would be no (laughs) technology as we know it. (laughs) Right. right. So it's it's a really I think um, morality always kind of lags behind the technologies that become possible. Um, And so now, as we're looking into genetic engineering and AI and these questions. the, the moral panic that follows is only building up and we're nowhere close to answering the moral questions that, that are um, pragmatically possible with the technology, but right. are they permissible? Uh,
2: yeah, and, and just tying this back to the civic realm, you know, we're living in a moment right now where the, the underprivileged are demonized, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I'm finding that so alarming there's no space for failure, or even this word failure, you know, it's not the right, right word. Right, right. Um, there's no space for that. And, and I'm just, I just have a real problem with that. And it does relate to, to my daughter in this fundamental way. And, and then you, you brought up this idea of evolution towards goodness. Yes, I
1: just, that phrase, cultural evolution towards
2: goodness. Cultural evolution yeah. towards goodness. That's I, your I, phrase. Yeah, I mean, I. What's that? That's your phrase, by the way. Right. I did say that. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. right. I remember now. Um, well, uh, let's go back to this idea of the evolution of complexity, the arise of complexity. And here we are, to, uh, the universe become aware. And, you know, let's take that a step further and think about emergent behaviors and, and what we can become. What can we become? What potentials are yet to be realized? What do we know about the empathic brain? How are we evolving? And what what about the decisions that we make now in the civic realm that decide who lives and dies? And how does that affect our evolution, right? Because it will, because these are life and death situations. So, So what we do in the civic realm does affect cultural evolution, but cultural evolution leads to biological evolution right? And right. it can go e- many ways. Right. Not necess- I don't think that there is a law to the universe that says there is an evolution towards goodness. Yeah. That we decide. That we decide.
1: I'm Krista Tippett at the 2018 On Being Gathering with astrophysicist Natalie Batalia and brain pickings Maria Popova. The whole notion of mystery and uncertainty, which uh, for us, you know, the three of us and, and I think everybody in this room, we have enough ground beneath our feet for mystery and uncertainty to, to be even sometimes thrilling. Not, not always thrilling. No. That's a ridiculous statement because I don't like uncertainty. I like mystery. I don't like uncertainty. <laughs> um.
0: <laughs> um.
1: <laughs> Unless I'm just really rested, maybe. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but I think a feature of this moment in fact, that maybe led us to this moment where now we're we're creating a real crisis is because we had this period because we just live in this moment, this century that opened with just these vast open questions. We can kind of see what's failing. We can see that schools don't make sense, and politics doesn't make sense, and the economy doesn't make sense, and medicine doesn't make sense. And and so and and right now we're in that in between time of like it's very clear what's broken, and it's not so clear what will follow. And science is all about, like, delighting and, right, that just, okay, so you you answered this question, and then you're just so excited about what questions this new thing raises. Mm -hmm. And I'm aware that this is also a divide in our culture, because I think this thing you're talking about, there's so many people who are really vulnerable, really on the edge. Like, they're uncertain about whether they're going to be able to eat, or, you know, the ground has been pulled out in a very short period of time from... You know the, what they thought they might be able to expect for their children, um, just in terms of having a livelihood. I'm just throwing that out there. I think about this a lot, and I don't want to use the word privilege in a way that this should shame us, but like just hmm. those of us who are safe enough to to love uncertainty and and mystery. But that this is part of our divide, like at some mm-hmm. deep psychological and
2: biological level. I, I've been thinking about this all week. Yeah. Yeah um i feel i do feel privileged to be here sorry and i and i do feel guilty about it not guilty let me let me rephrase that i'm keenly aware that having space and time for contemplation is a luxury i'm deeply aware of communities that don't have that space and time that every day is is just survival i lived in brazil for 5 years was undergoing a very a harsh political reality at that time. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm just tied into that, and I keep thinking about those people as we're t- here over this weekend talking about contemplating poetry and the meaning of love and all of these great, grandiose questions. I kept thinking these how mm-hmm. do we push that out? And I'm thinking about increasing diversity in science. We've got such a problem with, with a lack of diversity in science. And how can I use my small influence to maybe help that? And you know, what could be my role? And do I even have the right to do that? And what's my language? And what's my empathic connection to these communities? And knowing in the background that they don't have the space and time to think about these things. is just I don't have any answers. No. But it's very much on my mind.
1: Yeah, that's a question we're living. Because there's not an answer we can live right now. Or at least not, not collect, like, one by one, we can live
0: that. I mean, these are the hard questions, right? I, I think that our being here, I mean, I, you know, when Friday night during the opening, um, the gentleman from 1440 Multiversity said, I don't know why we're here, but it's not an accident, And I thought, oh, yes, it is. We have to come to terms with the fact that it is chance. I mean, I spent 18 years in a developing third-world country, and if I begin to think that I'm somehow special or I have merited my way here as opposed to all the people who didn't, there's so much chance that played into it. There's so much chance in what you were saying in the evolution of life. I mean, we are a cosmic accident. And so those of us who have been lucky, meaning have benefited from the flip side of chance that people who are of less advantage have benefited from the other side of chance, we have the responsibility to to expand that beyond our own chance-bound privilege and, and keep thinking of how we can expand that and grow that. Because, I mean, the, the commencement address you cited was actually... I started thinking about it on the bike path when I was overtaken by a man who I just had all this like rage of how dare he! You know, he was on an electric bicycle, and I felt, I felt like I was like honestly pedaling, and suddenly this guy has this existential advantage, you know. And I, just as I'm getting really indignant, I see on the back of his jacket there's a restaurant delivery um, sign, and I think, oh, he's just. Doing this to survive—he doesn't have like some upper hand on me, and you know, I'm I'm an I'm I'm an immigrant from a poor country. I I could have been the delivery person on the bicycle. How how did I end up here? I have no idea. I mean, so much chance, and of course, chance and choice conspire in our lives, and I think about that all the time. But okay, so we have had a certain you know hand that's been dealt to us of chance and what we make of that with our choice including the choice to be here that is how we expand chance for everyone else that's mm-hmm. all we can do that's the most we can do mm-hmm. <laughs> and
1: i love this place we've come to right now and it exists in a creative tension also with you know the beauty and the grandeur of the science you do, and the beauty and the grandeur of the ideas and people and teachers you bring to us. And, you know, so Maria, you've been working on this uh, universe in verse, like bringing together poetry and science. Mm. And I wanted to talk about that. And, and here we are, kind of drawing to the end of our time, and it doesn't, in any kind of organic way, follow from what's just been put into the room. But how does it, how does well, it, How it's connected
0: in you. It absolutely does. I mean, so the Universe Inverse was an event that I hosted last year, which was very much in response to what was, to basically the morning after the election. And I thought it was this weird esoteric idea that would get 15, you know, geeky people show up no, and we'd all clap yeah. for each other. Be, yeah. And the line was thrice around the block. 900 people was all we could fit, but thousands on the live stream. It was profound. And for me personally, it was the best spent two months of my life planning it, and and just the most uplifting experience. We had Elizabeth Alexander, who you had on the show, and um, just beautiful oh, had people. had so many people. We had such lovely people. Yeah. And you were <laughs> writing about it from afar, right, from California. It, it, it was
2: amazing. Yeah. I feel like it's so important what what she's done here. If there's one message I can communicate during this conversation, it's that at the nexus of spirituality and science is wonder. Mm. And I I just want to make sure that people understand that that's a common experience to both. Um, I've been very impressed this week um, with your words just words in general, the poetry, the lyricism, the way the words roll out of your, off of your tongues. Um, my point is I come from a, side, a different language, mm-hmm. language of numbers yes. or language of explaining the physical phenomena in our universe. And if we can get common language or if we can understand each other, I think that's so tremendously important. I had the opportunity to speak to some of the poets who are here and who have, who have shared their poetry. And one in particular mentioned a certain anxiety about talking about science, but yet feels all of that wonder. And, and it puzzles me. And I'm wondering if it's just a, a language barrier. Mm. There are some examples in our times of people that have married the two so spectacularly. Mm. And and the one to bring would you up
0: read, would you read some? Do you have a moment from some Diane Ackerman <laughs> and
2: Carl Sagan, yes. who happened to be at Cornell at the same time? Uh, Diane, from the perspective of a naturalist, and, and uh, she was in the humanities, I think. Ultimately, Carl Sagan from the science side, and they both met, you know, at this nexus of wonder and brought their different languages, and combined them in such a special, fantastic way.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, And he he was her doctoral advisor. She's she's one of very few working poets who has a science background. She has a PhD. And now a lot of her vast body of work is infused with this poetic love of nature and I mean, we we call nature something outside of ourselves. And I have yeah. such a problem with this notion of the environment as if it's the thing that surrounds us. Which separates us, us from it. There's Ptolemism in this, yes. you know? I just
1: recently learned this, because I read this beautiful biography of Alexander von Humboldt, which I know you read as well. What's the name? Uh, Andrea something Wolf. Something in the, nature. Yeah, Andrea yeah, Wolf. The invention, uh, the, the invention of nature. The invention of nature, yeah. And... He's the one who coined the term cosmos the way we throw it, or p- picked it up mm, in modernity. I didn't know that. But it didn't mean the
0: universe out there. And you know who coined it that? It meant... A poet. Milton, the first use of the Was word it out space there? in yeah. the English language. Celestial. In, yes, line 652 of book one of Paradise Lost. <laughs> I give you Maria Popova, um, and there it is—her encyclopedic memory. But Humboldt
1: <laughs> meant the cosmos was us. It was the yeah. cosmos of humanity and the natural world and everything out there. But it, it, there was no division. There was mm. no environment, as you say, because there was no separation. We have to finish, which is so sad. But we—but we don't. We're not. We're gonna. We're gonna draw it out. Um, uh, I. Um, I would actually love for each of you to read a poem. And we have a select collection up here. But, you know, and I have a bunch of them printed. Um, I mean, Natalie, you had written about this
2: poem of Diane Ackerman, School Prayer, which is a possibility. There's another uh, piece here that I think I'm going to actually prefer. And the reason I'm doing this is because it relates to the search for life. uh, And that's what I do. That's the long-term goal. So, um, again, this is a passage, one snippet from the larger poem called Pluto. The bread mold and I have much in common. We're both alive. The wardrobe of our cells is identical. We speak the same genetic code. The death of a star gave each of us life. But imagine a brand spanking new biology. Just as when a window abruptly flies open, the room grows airy and floods with light. So awakening to alien life form will transfigure how we think of ourselves and our lives. In my bony wrist alone, the DNA could spin a yarn filling thousands and thousands of library volumes. But one day, we'll browse in the stacks of other galaxies Given the sweet generosity of time that permits the blue-green algae and the polar bear, the cosmic flannel must be pockered with life. Hmm. Hmm.
0: Now, I'm going to read a poem by Denise Levertov, who is um, one of my favorite poets, but also she said, the purpose of poetry is to awaken sleepers by means other than shock. And... It is so precise and so perfect. And this is a poem that I'm um, including this year in the Earth and verse. Um, and it's called Sojourns in a Parallel World. We live our lives of human passions, cruelties, dreams, concepts, crimes, and the exercise of virtue in and beside a world devoid of our preoccupations, free from apprehension, though affected certainly by our actions a world parallel to our own, though overlapping. We call it nature, only reluctantly admitting ourselves to be nature, too. Whenever we lose track of our own obsessions, our self-concerns, because we drift for a minute, an hour even, of pure, almost pure response to that insociate life, cloud, bird, fox, the flow of light, the dancing pilgrimage of water, vast stillness of spellbound ephemera on a lit window pane, animal voices, mineral hum, wind conversing with rain, ocean with rock, stuttering of fire to coal. Then something tethered in us, hobbled like a donkey on its patch of gnawed grass and thistles, breaks free. No one discovers just where we've been when we're caught up again into our own sphere, where we must return indeed to evolve our destinies. But we have changed a little. Thank you, Natalie Batalia and Maria Popova.
1: (laughs) Maria Popova is the creator and presence behind BrainPickings.org, and she's an MIT Futures of Entertainment fellow. Natalie Battaglia is an astrophysicist at NASA Ames Research Center and the project scientist for NASA's Kepler mission. On being is
2: Chris Hegel, Lily Percy,
1: Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell,
2: Marie Sambalay, Malka Fenavesi, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bertina Davis, Bethany Iverson, Erin Colosaco, Kristen Lynn,
0: and Jeffrey Bissoy.
1: Special thanks this week to the wonderful 1440 Multiversity team, especially Susan Freddy, Susan Coles, Janice Smith, Michelle McNamara, Steve Seabach, Avery Lauren, Joshua Green, and David Dunning. Also, our colleague, Zach Rose, for his superb audio production skills and his superb companionship, too. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopea Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org part of the Omidyar Group, the Henry Luce Foundation in support of public theology reimagined, the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives, and the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education.
0: On Bing is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and is a Krista Tippett Public Production.